Hi, my name is Glenn Kenny. I write about film for the New York Times and for RogerEbert.com and for Film Comment. And in 2014, I published, or rather Phaedon published, a book called Anatomy of an Actor, Robert De Niro, uh, which is one of the sources I'll be citing in my commentary on this film, Greetings, a film by Brian De Palma. The movie opens with a, a real-life newscast um, being taped off of a television, a screen within a screen. I don't know, I wasn't able to uh, track down the name of this newscaster, but he, uh, um, you know, is delivering an actual news broadcast, and it will cut to a speech by the then-president, William uh, Lyndon Johnson, um, who will say some things that are kind of... Uh, ironic in the uh, in the context of what's going on. Um, Johnson was famously uh, the president of the United States after the assassination of John F. Kennedy and then won a decisive victory in 1964 over Barry Goldwater and um, chose for reasons that are uh, very complicated to escalate the uh, war in Vietnam. And uh, here he is um, speaking to a pro-administration labor convention. This, I was actually able to uh, track down this speech. This is March 25th, uh, 1968, and uh, Lyndon Johnson is addressing the labor union, the AFL-CIO. Um, he's saying, this is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but it is a fact. Um, and the fact that he was saying stuff like this at this point kind of suggests how... Uh, at loose ends he was uh, about about the participation in the Vietnam War and what was going on. And this movie is very much about the Vietnam War. Uh, it is about the draft, specifically. The title is Greetings, and Greetings is the first word if you were a uh, male uh, of draft age in the uh, mid to late 60s, and you got a letter from uh, the government, the opening word was greetings. Uh, that was how you knew that you were going to be uh, drafted. Um, and this was a crucible of, of considerable uh, unpleasantness for a lot of young men who did not want to join the military. And there was a lot of desperation about getting out of the uh, military. And you'll see in the scene uh, that happens right after this song, how desperate some young men were to get out of the draft. Um, this song is done by a group called the Children of Paradise, Stephen Souls, Eric Kaz, Artie Traum. Uh, I've, I was actually able to track down Stephen Souls. He's married to a friend of mine, and he's still very active making music. In fact, he's so active making music that he spends his days in his home studio and uh, he was not able to get back to me uh, to answer some questions that I sent him about this film because he's, uh, he's kind of, uh, as he put it, in mad professor mode working on music. Someone who I did hear from and had a very nice chat with was uh, Charles uh, Hirsch, um, the producer and co-writer of the film, who also goes by Chuck Hirsch, and I'll be sharing with you some of his uh, anecdotes and insights as we go along um, with the film. Uh, this is a long take, a tracking shot that's going to end with uh, the um, protagonist here, one of the three protagonists, Paul Shaw, played by Jonathan Warden, and he just goes into a bar 
and you hear what he says. Which one of you niggers is mad enough to take me on? Oh boy, uh, I'm not going to repeat that line. Uh, that's the kind of line that you uh, are not going to necessarily get away with or even think about using in a film such as this. But this is indicative of the kind of humor that the film uh, travels in. Uh, and the punchline of, of, the, um, of uh, Paul's uh, black eye uh, is, uh, uh, shows what happened after he made that challenge. But uh, one of the things this movie does have a, have a great debt to is, is the humor of Lenny Bruce, um, who, uh, you know, was very uh, adamant and liberal in his use of uh, supposedly forbidden and taboo words, uh, as you see in this particular scene. Uh, the discussion is how to get out of the gra- draft, and uh, the uh, idea is, uh, will we're, we're making you a fag. Um, so words like fag and the racial epithet used at the beginning are um, are pretty common are thrown around pretty freely in this film and uh they would not necessarily be uh in a film made today in which the uh main characters were supposed to be um considered sympathetic. Um Jonathan Warden is uh because he's the character whose draft hearing is coming up um so soon He's, uh, he's the main point uh, of emphasis in the early part of the film. Uh, unlike uh, the two other guys in the film, uh, the, the two other main actors in the film, Garrett Graham and Robert De Niro, Jonathan Warden did not go on to a long or major career. And uh, when I was doing the research on this film, um, literally his, um, he seemed to disappear without a trace uh, after making this picture. He doesn't have any other IMDb credits. Um, I was only able to solve the mystery, and uh, I was only able to solve it uh, partially uh, when I spoke with Charles Hirsch, the uh, co-writer and producer of this film. Um, Chuck has, uh, as you see, the uh, character Lloyd, uh, played by Garrett Graham, is giving uh, Paul uh, instructions on how to uh, look fey and... Uh, seem homosexual for the uh, benefit of the uh, people at the draft board. Uh, Chuck Hirsch um, was involved uh, directly in uh, giving the rights to uh, the video rights to this film to Arrow because uh, after having been distributed by MGM for uh, several decades, the rights to distribute this film have reverted to him. So he... um, was very conscientious about the fact that he wanted to make sure that everybody involved in the picture got residuals. This is a movie that was made for $43,000. Chuck uh, and Brian, both Brian De Palma in interviews and Chuck uh, directly chatting with me, told me that the source of income were um, loans from people that uh, that Chuck knew and then maxing out some credit cards. Um, It was made for $43 million and according to Chuck, the box office on the picture was over a million dollars, so it made a good amount of money, and Chuck has always been uh, very conscientious about trying to uh, get the residuals to the people who were involved in the film who worked for nothing. They're often very small residuals, but what happened was when he negotiated the video rights for this version, uh, they were, they were uh, sold for a particular amount of money, and 
Chuck wanted to divvy out the residuals, and he heard from Rutania Alda, uh, who plays a character we'll meet later in the film, and she had um, heard from uh, Jonathan Warden. And there's no continuation of the story like what happened to Jonathan Warden. The only continuation I have for you is that he is still alive. He's no longer an actor. He lives in a uh, southern state that is uh, known for um, being a... Uh, a refuge for uh, retired individuals. He's uh, 80 years old now. Chuck said that uh, he um, he's, he was a few years older than John. That Jonathan was a few years older than him when they made the movie. Uh, they were both in their 20s, but uh, Chuck was about 25 and Jonathan was about 29, almost 30. But uh, Jonathan always looked very, very young. Um, figuring out the residuals that Jonathan had not been paid during the period where he couldn't be found amounted to uh, a fairly large amount, which, uh, which Chuck then did pay for him. Um, Chuck also shared with me the fact that, you know, he was told that the movie only made one million uh, by the distributor at the time when uh, it actually made three or four million. Um, and he was, he was always very um, conscientious about trying to distribute the proceeds that were... Uh, supposed to go to cast and crew to cast and crew. An interesting thing about this movie is that it's a youth movie. Um, despite the fact that these guys don't have uh, terribly long hair, they're all young men and they're all um, socially alienated and uh, it's all happening in the 60s. This is a movie that actually came out several months prior to Easy Rider. This film was... Uh, debuted in December of 1968, and Easy Rider did not come out until uh, July of 1969. So Easy Rider is often um, cited as this paradigm-breaking youth film, and this is actually a substantial predecessor to it. But it's also a, a different kind of movie, and it's not nearly... It's a more, I think it's in, in, its, in its own way, it's a more idiosyncratic movie than Easy Rider. It's not as uh, psychedelic as Easy Rider, so it doesn't have that um, aspect to it. But Easy Rider, I think, has some aspects of it that are more immediately ingratiating to an audience. Uh, and this has some, some, some rougher intellectual edges. The way this film came together, this is, you know, independent film as we now know it uh, was not nearly as uh, prominent a fixture in American filmmaking in 1968 as, as it has become since then. You know, essentially you had, you had John Cassavetes and you had, you know, people like Alan Barron, Herc Harvey, there were regional filmmakers who made independent films that made a slight impact somewhere or other and became classics eventually, but there was no, independent film was not a category. Uh, and so Brian De Palma had been a um, filmmaker who, who started with student films. He worked with Wilfred Leach at Columbia University on a, short, on a feature called The Wedding Party. And this was where he first met Robert De Niro, who at the time was a stage actor. The wedding party was not completed until um, about four or five, four years after it was actually shot. In the interim, 
De Palma made a film called Murder a la Mod, which is um, not too frequently seen, although when Criterion put out uh, their edition of the film Blowout, it was included on that disc. And uh, it kind of straddles the um, middle ground. It falls between the two stools of sort of a grindhouse exploitation movie and what would become a Brian De Palma-style thriller, i.e. one that was highly concerned with voyeurism. And in fact, uh, Murder a la Mod is the first of several films in which De Palma uses the screen test idea as a, um, as a sort of metaphor for voyeurism. You'll see here De Niro's character, John Rubin, will uh, try to do a screen test with the uh, character of Linda, played by Rutania, Ruth Alda, Rutania Alda, uh, to try and get to see her nude. Um, and, and voyeurism, you know, is a huge motif in De Palma. You'll see it in uh, High Mom, which is a film that is also part of this package. Uh, body double there there's voyeurism and then there's also walking in on someone having sex the betrayal of that from the male point of view which is uh, seen in high mom and also very much so in um, body double but in terms of the impetus for this picture um, Charles Hirsch uh, had uh, was kicking around New York he owned a revival theater uh, he uh, got a job with, in the New York office of Universal Pictures as director of New Talent. And he said to me, you know, this job sort of enabled me to just take a lot of young filmmakers to lunch at Rubens, then a uh, big restaurant, uh, popular restaurant in, in, for New York showbiz people. He became friendly with Brian, and they cooked up this idea. And uh, what Chuck told me about the idea, the impetus for the idea initially, confirmed my suspicions about the movie and, and their suspicions that anyone um, who, who's, who's conversant in the films of this era probably would have come up with anyway. There are a lot of affinities in this picture with Godard's masculine feminine. And Chuck actually said to me, I pitched this movie to Brian as an American uh, masculine feminine. And it is in certain respects like that, although it does not have much going on in terms of privileging or even for, you know, uh, putting into the foreground the female point of view. Females in this film are always the other. I think they're the other in the Godard film too, but they, they get their own say. Here they don't. This, um, this structure they're walking around, this is very De Palma, if you remember the um, museum of, uh, Metropolitan Museum scene in... Uh, his film Dressed to Kill. Uh, De Palma is uh, an art connoisseur, and um, this will figure in a scene that we'll see a little later in the film. Uh, that uh, structure they're walking around is uh, the Red Cube by the uh, artist, uh, the Los Angeles-born artist Isamu Noguchi, uh, an artist and industrial designer, and uh, that red cube is still uh, still stands outside 140 Broadway in the Financial District, near Wall Street. This shot of them uh, walking around goofily is also in the Wall Street area. They might be uh, near the Pan Am building in another shot uh, later on in this scene. They uh, he's tending to keep a close watch on these uh, guys. Garrett Graham is. Uh, monologuing about women and their physical features, a lot of disparaging descriptions 
Um, later on, he'll start getting into his real obsession, which is the Kennedy assassination. But uh, yeah, so the uh, idea for this film was um, an American masculine feminine and Chuck decided he needed to shoot it on his vacation from uh, his job at Universal. Uh, he cobbled together the money using credit cards and loans from friends, but he also used uh, the fact of his position at Universal to get people on his side. As he um, said, the, the whole idea of this storyline was these three guys trying to get out of the war. And also the hangout aspect of it has um, influences of Fellini's Evitaloni, of course. Um, but these are three guys who, as Chuck said, are not in the mainstream of anything. And he, like Brian, felt an affinity with these guys. And in fact, he says, he told me the, uh, the Kennedy assassination aspect of Garrett Graham's character came from Hirsch. The voyeur aspect of, um, of, of John Rubin, De Niro's character, came from Brian. And uh, Jonathan Warden will be seen later on uh, trying computer dating. And that was um, a combination of both of their interests, despite the fact that Hirsch himself was married at the time. And we will see uh, the woman to whom he was married a little later on in the picture. Um, Garrett Graham is an interesting uh, actor. He, uh, of, all the, uh, of, all the of all the actors in this film, uh, he had the most... Uh, productive and long-term relationship with, with De Palma. He, uh, like De Niro, he went on to appear in High Mom uh, after uh, this picture. Uh, and he was particularly memorable in the 1974 Phantom of the Paradise playing. Uh, his strength, I think, is in outsize crazed declamatory performances, as you see him you know, doing riffing here. And in uh, Fan of the Paradise, he's, um, he's very, uh, very effective as this crazed rock star named Beef. Um, and he, he does not really show up in uh, another De Palma film until Home Movies in 1979. But, uh, you know, he's done enough with De Palma that he can, you know... He feels like a quintessential De Palma actor in a way that someone like De Niro doesn't. Um, you know, De, De Palma can be credited, in a sense, with discovering De Niro as a screen actor. Um, when uh, De Niro auditioned for a role in The Wedding Party, which is part of this package, he um, showed up and declaimed uh, from Clifford Odets' Waiting for Lefty, and, um, you know... It was, he was immediately cast. We'll get back to that, uh, the De Niro and um, De Palma relationship in just a minute. You see the uh, these scenes of them running around, uh, jumping, uh, the fast motion. That's all uh, directly influenced by Richard Lester, the running, uh, standing, sitting still, running, jumping, sitting still film, of course. And, of course, The Hard Day's Night with the uh, Beatles and... Uh, yeah, you know, the Beatles' influence is felt in the songs by the Children of Paradise, the jangly guitars, the harmonies. But the conversation right now between Garrett Graham and a artist named Richard Hamilton, who uh, was a very influential pop artist, and this is again where the influence of um, Godard comes in. This isn't directly 
the idea here isn't directly uh, lifted from um, from uh, masculine feminine, but it is uh, it nods very directly to Godard's 1963 Vivre Savi, uh, the film with uh, Anna Karina, his then wife at the time, playing a uh, prostitute who uh, has a long conversation in a uh, bistro with the philosopher uh, Bryce Perrain. That doesn't really move the story in Viva Savi forward in any way, but is an opportunity for the two characters, with the one character and the one real-life figure, to discourse on um, philosophy and art and things like that. Um, and... Uh, what we'll see later in the film uh, that does nod directly to masculine and feminine is something that uh, is sort of like a version of that film's uh, interview with the consumer product. Um, but in here, it's, uh, it's from Viva Savi, and uh, I asked uh, Chuck Hirsch uh, how that happened, and he, uh, he does not quite recall. He, says, uh, he said to me, that was probably Brian. Um, and, uh, there was also someone else involved in the film who was, uh, dating someone who worked at the Whitney, who could have provided the connection to bring Richard Hamilton in, but Richard Hamilton was clearly game. They needed to introduce this element of the blow-ups, um, which, you know, harks to, um, Antonioni's film, but, um, bringing him in and showing them those pictures was a, a way of, of, of introducing that. But also, you know, uh, De Palma's own affinity for, for modern art. Richard Hamilton himself would go on to work with the Beatles um, not too long after this film was shot. He was the guy who came up with the design for um, the self-titled double album that is now known as the White Album. So that was, uh, that was Richard uh, Hamilton. There's actually a... Um, a little, a little while from now, there is a, a reference, an explicit reference to blow up when, um, when Garrett Graham's character, um, shows the, uh, shows the, uh, uh, blow, shows the photos to a character who's played by the woman who was at the time married to uh, Chuck Hirsch. And she says to him, I've seen blow up. I know how this is going to turn out. Um, and the movie doesn't really turn out as such because there's no resolution to the um, to, to the to anything in this film the resolution is one of these guys goes to Vietnam in a 1975 this is here she is um, this is Tina Hirsch who is then known as Bettina Kugel, but uh, she was married at the time to uh, Chuck Hirsch. In a 1975 interview, David Bartholomew writes, released in December 1968, um, De Palma's third film was a bold, brash uh, blend of mania and anarchy. Um, it uh, was one of the earliest films to earn an X rating for the MPAA as we saw earlier, and it eventually won the Silver Bear at the Berlin Film Festival in 1969. De Palma says in the interview, I think the film stands up really well. 
I'm a bad person to judge because I have so many associations with it. It does still work quite well. I think it will probably be around for quite a while. As you say, I think it is the most accurate reflection of what was going down in that era from middle-class kids in college who were worried about the draft. I don't know anybody who actually went. Everybody dodged it in one way or another. And what they felt about what was going on at the time, the liberalism of the time, the Kennedy assassination, the sexual liberalism, computer dating and porno movies, all of that I think it reflected very accurately. It catches that feeling better than anything I know, the way it was shot, the freewheelingness of it. The film uh, certainly got some interesting reviews. Uh, In uh, December uh, 18th of 1968, it was reviewed in the New York Times by Howard Thompson. his review reads, the idea of a kind of comic strip movie romp satirically thrusting at certain aspects of the American scene somehow seems apt during the holiday season. But Greetings, a freewheeling exercise put together by a group of chaps in their 20s, is way off target. This modest but blandly assured little picture, nimbly photographed in good color, opened yesterday at the 34th Street East Theater. What we have here is a trio of hippie-talking pals adventurously prowling the streets of New York and New Jersey, linking up with a succession of enigmatic girls and aiming some splintery, incoherent monologues at each other and occasionally the camera. Some of it is amusing as when one of the lads is couched in the technique of draft, coached in the technique of draft out, dodging. Most of it is strained and unfunny with some gratuitous nudity for nudity's sake and a hip sprinkling of four-letter words. One subject of mockery is President Johnson, who is shown in a newsreel clip defending his position on Vietnam, and a smirking actor named Garrett Graham prances through the picture trying to disprove the findings of the Warren Commission. A a typically disgusting scene shows him using a nude girl to tape measure a simulated bullet trajectory. Of his pals, Robert De Niro and Jonathan Walden, the latter gives at least some evidence of a little talent. There's no doubt that young Brian De Palma, who directed in Charles Hirsch, is producer, determined, and career-minded. Next time they might try for something that matters instead of of the tired, tawdry, and tattered so says Howard Thompson. Now here I'm wondering, uh, Paul coming home to relax and being uh, practically assaulted by a young woman, is that wrestling match there because of some sort of Brechtian distancing or uh, self-referentiality, or is it a continuity error, or is it even a wrestling match to begin with? Hard to say. The thing about um, the the review of greetings actually um, excited some very um, um, outraged commentary from readers of the New York Times. Uh, the The paper used to run responses to reviews, and um, and there's, uh, there's three really long letters from January of 1969. Um, one, 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 from, uh, one from a guy named William Bayer, who uh, signs his letter as a documentary filmmaker. And it's, it's almost a thousand words long where he says, you know, your review of, of this movie uh, did not... Um, did not do it justice, and it has, you know, it's it's almost as comprehensive as, as one of uh, Garrett Graham's uh, attempted debunkings of the Warren Report. It says, uh, when a good film is misunderstood and then characterized by Howard Thompson as tired, tawdry, and uh, tattered, it is time to come to the rescue. 
Uh, it has, this is a greetings of a style, wit, and meeting, and marks the debut of a talented new American director. Um, and it goes on to uh, say, uh, it actually has bullet points. Kennedy, we are continually assaulted by documentation that undermines the Warren report. When Lloyd, the assassination buff, traces bullet trajectories on the naked body of his girlfriend and then turns to the audience with proof of discrepancy, we laugh and shiver at the same time, etc. Um, and then uh, these letters are followed by other letters. Um, this is from January. Recently you published a letter by William Bayer, a documentary filmmaker, which extolled the picture greetings and indirectly denigrated Howard Thompson for his negative review. While each is at least partially correct and that the merits of the film lie somewhere in the middle, it is their reasoning which is objectionable. Firstly, Greetings does not mark Brian De Palma's debut as a director. His wedding party and Murder a la Mod were two earlier and more interesting efforts. And it, it just goes on. So, um, my, my, the newspaper for, for which I uh, write uh, freelance reviews um, once had a uh, much more lively uh, letters section with a lot of space because these, um, these letters are pretty long. And uh, nowadays people argue about these films on Twitter. Now I wrote about um, here. Here we get into um, some of the uh, some of the weird. Um, there's no other word for it, kind of misogyny of the uh, of, of of the film with the, the the computer dating and the character known as the Bronx secretary, who's. Um, weirdly uh, aggressive, you know, dressed out for a night on the town, is not, uh, is not happy with, uh, with, um, the, uh, with Paul's, uh, lack of planning for the date, the whole, uh, we're going to take a bus to, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the then, uh, the, the, the then, uh, popular nightclub she thinks she's going to. Um, he's not prepared for a, uh, for, for, for any kind of real date here. So, um, the a actor is Ashley Oliver. Um, but, um, you know, there's no, um, there's no real attempt to kind of understand a, a feminine perspective here. It's, 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 um, it's Paul and this person to whom he, he cannot have, make any kind of. Um, you know, empathy or relation, except to sort of stare at her cleavage. You see the uh, point of view shot of the uh, of the dress and so on. She's bragging about his shoes. Um, and uh, you know, the scene builds up to a a, a pretty sour punchline. Um, you know, the, the point of view here is is that of of kind of put upon men. Uh, and, uh, it's not one that really plays, uh, very well, but I have to say, I am, I am not someone who was at this age at this time. When this film came out, I was about nine years old. Um, but I do remember the counterculture as being, uh, pretty reactionary relative to, um, relative to gender relations. And there's a, a lot of attitude of how, you know, the the revolution was going to be groovy uh, 
but the chicks had to sort of stay in the kitchen while it was happening, you know. Um, and and here you find in all the computer dating scenes, there's this um, there's this 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 feeling of you know why won't women just sort of straighten out and you know do as we kind of would like. So there, she's got a book about the Boston Strangler and Naked Came I on, uh, next to it on the bookshelf. And she's just, you know, she just offers herself to him. And uh, that is also a turnoff. Um, so, you know, if you're a woman in this film, you kind of, uh, you're not, you can't win. You're one of my best friends. I figured maybe she'd be ready for you or you'd be ready for her. FBI. There's that uh, bullet that looks kind of like that, almost, that, that, that phallic looking bullet. Uh, and here we have another, um, here we have the scene that uh, Howard Thompson was very offended by. Of the, uh, and this is an instance of the nudity that um, was going to uh, earn this, this picture a, uh, an X rating. Um, and it is kind of a, uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, except insofar as it's it's just pretty tasteless. But again, this is uh, this is this is this is De Palma's sense of humor, uh, and uh, you know there are there are there are a lot of subsequent uh, Morden jokes in in all of his tr filmography that uh, are are probably done with a little more refinement. But um, there's the same kind of of idea happening here. When uh, this film did pretty well, um, and uh, Chuck Hirsch felt like he was on a track to uh, continue working with um, these guys, and uh, he was not involved in the subsequent film, uh, Hi Mom. Uh, similarly, Steve Souls and Artie Traum were not uh, involved in the music of uh, Hi Mom, whereas Eric Kaz was. Um, Chuck said to me, when I made the film, I was 25 years old. I was 25 going on 12. I was charming, but obnoxious. Um, and, you know, essentially when it was time to do, uh, Hi Mom, De Palma felt that, um, people like Marty Ransahoff, um, was a, a better fit f as a producer. And um, Chuck was telling me, he said to De Palma, what are you going to do without me? I'm, I'm the funny guy. Um, at that time, according to uh, Chuck, uh, he had never known defeat. And uh, he felt he was screwed on a contract. After doing Hi Mom, uh, Brian got an offer from Warner Brothers. And um, he went out to do a film called Get to Know Your Rabbit which turned out to, uh, to be a, a, a pretty substantial uh, debacle for him. It was a picture that the studio didn't like and tried to take away from him. It was a movie about a magician starring Tommy Smothers. Tommy Smothers was under the impression that he was going to be a big star, and he kind of muscled his way uh, into a lot of uh, compromises that De Palma didn't want to make. So it was not a... Um, it was not a happy occasion for uh, De Palma, 
But uh, Chuck Hirsch remained friendly with De Palma. In fact, um, Chuck Hirsch uh, introduced De Palma to his brother Paul, and Paul Hirsch became uh, De Palma's editor for a very, very long time and worked on uh, most of De Palma's best-known uh, pictures. Um, uh, Tina, Tina Hirsch, uh, or Bettina Kugel, uh, also um, became a film editor after, uh, after um, working as an actor in this picture. But, um, yeah, Paul, uh, Paul is, uh, is, is, a, is a very acclaimed editor. Um, so uh, the initial idea for Hi Mom was to make a movie called uh, Son of Greetings. Uh, Paul Hirsch was at the time editing commercials and trailers. Uh, Chuck introduced him to Brian. They hit it off. Um, and it was Paul Hirsch who later on in De Palma's career, apparently according to Chuck, suggested working with Bernard Herrmann, the, uh, the, um, the composer who did the uh, score for uh, Obsession uh, and for Sisters, um, among, among others. Um, Chuck said to me, now I know, uh, now I know my epitaph, um, producer of the first MPAA X-rated movie. We beat out Midnight Cowboy by two weeks. He, uh, he enjoyed, uh, the experience of going to the, uh, Berlin Film Festival. He says, we are on an Air France jet to Berlin. Uh, the stewardess asked if he, if he liked the Chateaubriand, can I have seconds? And she gave him seconds, and this was a big memory for uh, for uh, for Chuck coming back from the Berlin Film Festival, being the only people on the uh, in first class on the Air France jet. Um, he then kind of wandered around. Um, things weren't working out the way he wanted to. Lou Wasserman had enjoyed greetings and brought uh, Chuck into his fold, sent him to New York to negotiate with the author Charles Simmons to make a movie out of his book, Powdered Eggs. Um, he said, don't go over $20,000. And the minute he went over twenty-five to $25,000, Lou Wasserman said, wish Chuck good luck on his next job. Uh, Chuck also recommended to Universal that they pick up hair while the uh, rights were only $30,000. And uh, they didn't, which would have been a, a kind of a coup for them. Um, in 1984, his friend Peter Hyams uh, got him an office uh, near his, and uh, he worked with him uh, there. Then he became a therapist, and now he's uh, working on a writing project. Um, now, and now you see the, the gay divorcee, the, again, the attitude towards women. It's like, as soon as he sees a single mom, he's like, out of here. Uh, Cinema One and Cinema Two uptown on Third Avenue, New York, uh, New York City, they still exist um, right across from Bloomingdale's. That's uh, that's the uh, that, that that is still a, a functioning theater. The place next door, Bookmasters, is no longer existent. Um, here we start to get away from the thread of of Paul's narrative and into the narrative of, of John, um, but uh, also of uh, Lloyd, because here we have uh, 
a character coming in and uh, he's uh, talking about figures like O.H. Lee, a.k.a. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. It's a character named Earl Roberts, and he's played by Peter Maloney, who became a, uh, who is still a very uh, active character actor. You can see him on, on Law and Order. He's in Requiem for a Dream, Boiler Room. Um, he he looked even then like someone. I mean, here he's playing kind of a, a rather uh, unbalanced person. But uh, in a couple of years, he would become someone who uh, would uh, could play lawyers very credibly. And he he turned up again in High Mom, playing a pharmacist. Um, And here we get into some interesting uh, structural stuff relative to the storytelling. The, uh, the bookstore uh, material isn't exactly out of sequence, but we see De Niro's character, John Rubin, giving someone a book, and it's not until we, later we find out, we flash back and we find out why this is being done. And uh, later on in his career... De Palma would uh, do a lot more in terms of uh, flashback and flash forward and uh, sort of false, uh, unreliable narration. Um, in an interview in uh, 1992 with Peter Gao, uh, Peter Keough, excuse me, he talks about uh, De Palma's obsession with duality. He says, De Palma's obsession with duality is reflected in his film's narrative structure. In Raising Cain, we are barely introduced to Carter Nixon as nefarious father and twin when the film is blindsided by another story, that of his wife's guilty affair with vacant hunk Stephen Bauer. The two stories bounce off one another in a wacky fugue, baroquely ornamented by De Palma's melodramatic excesses. That has always been my structure, says De Palma. From greetings and hi, mom, I have one story colliding into another in the most absurdist way, completely turning the other one around. That's what's happening in Raising Cain. Even though those people are married, they are involved in completely different psychological storylines. One is fantasizing about multiples and twins and dead and perhaps not dead fathers, while the other is off on a fantasy about a lost love. They just happen to stumble across each other, which causes all the impending tragedy of the movie. Here, even though um, the narratives are, are deliberately meant to be splintered, we're going to get a, we're going to get the the narrative of the uh, of the of the never to be resolved uh kennedy assassination conspiracy theorist uh bouncing or uh rubbing into the uh, narrative of of de niro's uh voyeuristic wannabe filmmaker john rubin and it's going to be john's narrative that really takes over the uh the picture uh as is probably appropriate because John is the character who's closest to De Palma himself. De Palma was raised um, in New Jersey, uh, born in Newark, raised in Philadelphia and uh, New Hampshire as well. Um, if you've ever seen Dress to Kill, there's a strange... Uh, bit of business in the plot where the character played by Keith Gordon, uh, you know, comes up with a, a homemade bugging system to bug the office of the psychiatrist played by uh, Michael Caine. This is an actually an overtly autobiographical element 
because uh, De Palma, who was a bit of a tinkerer, uh, electronics tinkerer in his youth, set up a bugging system to expose his father's infidelities uh, during his parents' marriage. So, as, as Wikipedia points out, he also won a regional science fair prize for a project entitled An Analog Computer to Solve Differential Equations. Um, because this film is so kind of rough-edged in its look, um, you don't necessarily get the um, masterful wonkiness of what was to become De Palma's style, but there's uh, a very definite point of view. And uh, in, in a scene like this where, you know, a lot of the times in this film there's some fast cutting even though there are longer takes. Um, but, uh, you know, working with the budget he had, he, I think, also knew that these kind of long takes were uh, the best way of, of keeping things... Uh, in a uh, in a kind of a reasonable uh, re reasonable shooting schedule, um, that of course this long take is uh, broken up by the shot of John Rubin uh, stocking books and then looking down at the racks and seeing the woman who is the shoplifter, who's played by uh, Rutania Alda, who goes here by the name of Ruth Alda. I'm going to talk a little bit about De Niro uh, now and his involvement in the picture. Because they're watching us. They watch me every minute. In the wedding party, he um, plays a kind of a, a roughneck kind of guy, uh, not entirely dissimilar to someone like Johnny Boy in Scorsese's Mean Streets, but not nearly as uh, as psychotic as that character. He's he's an ordinary fellow who just happens to be kind of. Um, vulgar, exuberant, working-class kind of guy. And as I said, he uh, got the part by uh, doing a monologue from Clif Clifford Odets's Waiting for Lefty, and not only doing the monologue, but riffing on the monologue. The part he's playing here and the part he plays in uh, Hi Mom are the same guy, a guy named John Rubin. And as we've said, he's a sort of the closest to a surrogate of De Palma in this film. It's not necessarily a part he's immediately appropriate for, especially as we know the De Niro of the 70s. Um, he's not someone who plays um, bookish, introverted types. Um, although there's certainly in uh, Travis Bickle uh, an inward-looking character who just happens to act out with psychotic violence. Um, but he's, he, he's, you know, his first uh, major role in a studio picture in 73's Bang the Drum Slowly, for which he adopted a southern accent, was someone who was not, uh, not really a cerebral person. John Rubin's more cerebral than, than any character De Niro played around this time. And De Niro still has not made a specialty of playing cerebral characters. Here's uh, some material from my own uh, study of De Niro. Uh, the wedding party in which De Niro excelled playing a quasi-roughneck pal of the story's prospective groom introduced De Niro to director Brian De Palma, who had proven an important collaborator. The movie's protracted editing process held up its release so it couldn't get any traction for the actor's film career. De Niro spent much of the 1960s doing a motley array of theatrical work. 
The drag performer Holly Woodlawn, an Andy Warhol superstar of that decade, is likely one of dozens of the New York arts world with an I gave Robert De Niro his first break anecdote. In 2003, Woodlawn waxed nostalgic to columnist Liz Smith. After noting that she had sent him a get well card as he recovered from prostate cancer, she took credit for getting Bobby his first acting job. As Holly tells it, it was during the production of Glamour, Glory, and Gold, an off-Broadway effort that also starred Warhol goddess Candy Darling. Bobby's mom owned a printing shop in Brooklyn, Holly said. We didn't have the money to make up posters, so Ron Link, the director, and myself told Mrs. De Niro, we will make your son a star on one condition that you print our posters for free. The rest, according to Holly, was history. De Niro played all ten of the male roles in that little late 60s show. There were other shows and tours in a file on De Niro in the New York Public Library Performing Arts Division. The very first clipping on De Niro dates from May 3rd, 1967, and is from the Guilford Gazette, a North Carolina paper. Gene S. Key reviews a touring production of the play Chin Chin and notes of the lot, though the Nero, sick, must be singled out as he revealed the anguish of a lost soul, uneducated and uncultured, trying to find the way in a complicated world that had heretofore been so simple. His philosophy as an actor was to earn the right to play a given role, De Niro biographer John Baxter recounts, and as we'll see, the actor applied that tenet to his first major film role. Transformation was key, and to that end, according to some of the early associates, he concocted various headshots and one composite depicting him in different characterizations, sometimes young, sometimes old. During this time, he received steady encouragement and support from two female actors, Sally Kirkland and Shelley Winters. Kirkland was active in the New York theater scene and made a strong impression in, on the, in the film uh, Milton Moses Ginsburg's Frank's Sexual Psychodrama Coming Apart in 68. Shelley Winters was kind of the den mother for a, uh, a lot of uh, young actors and then later went on to work with De Niro in Roger Corman's Bloody Mama. Um, as the 60s darkened into the 70s, De Niro, the actor, found himself for the first time in the kind of role he would play for uh, Martin Scorsese, that of a surrogate for a director making films out of a personal vision. De Niro played the role of John Rubin in two films directed by De Palma, who was not yet the gleefully perverse technocrat of Carrie, Dressed to Kill, and other formerly advanced thrillers. The low-budget De Palma, while fond of split screens and other devices, is more noteworthy for a relentlessly mordant and sardonic sensibility that aspires to the condition of satire and atmosphere in which De Niro does not exactly thrive. And again, I think, uh, you know, arguably that's more the case, if that is indeed the case, and I, you know, I'm willing to allow that it might not be. Um, it's more prominent in a film like High Mom, which is also part of this set, in which De Niro has the, uh, the lead role, the most prominent role. As you see here, he doesn't really get to the forefront uh, until, uh, until quite some time. Uh, here is um, one, of the, uh, one of the final computer dates. And uh, it ends, you know, with the camera staying, um, staying static and the two characters uh, hitting the ground. And uh, it's a, as a kind of a a blackout gag that's not quite the Lubitsch touch, obviously, because it's meant to uh, infer something uh, very, very different. And here is the point in the film where uh, where De Niro really comes to the forefront. I've not been able to figure out what the name of that book is that he's uh, reading. 
Um, but it is the inspiration for what becomes his, uh, his Peeping Tom filmmaking adventure. She may turn off the light before undressing. Again, like the fisherman who keeps a list of areas where fishing is especially good, the peeper not infrequently has in mind a number of particularly... particularly Sean Levy has a biography of De Niro that uh, came out uh, in 2015, uh, where he does not uh, spend... 2014, I'm sorry. He does not spend a uh, huge amount on, on De Niro, but uh, let me read to you the portions where he talks about uh, the making of this film. At this point in time, um, De Niro had uh, gotten himself a telephone answering service, but he still wasn't yet comfortable with the expense and hassle of professional representation, or perhaps he wasn't able to secure it. I got my first jobs without an agent, he said. Sent out my resume and pictures and showed up at auditions. When you're starting out, you really have to do it all by yourself, and you still end up having to make the decisions. I don't like people to make the decisions for me. Um, this is a, an interesting thing about actors. Um, you know, people wonder, and this is something I kind of had to address in my book about De Niro, well... De Niro is one of the greatest actors of his generation. He's an heir to Brando. He's a, he's a legend. Why uh, now, we're speaking in 2018, uh, and it's still going to be a while before his um, much-anticipated reunion with Martin Scorsese, the Irishman, is completed and, and is seen. I'm, I'm told by uh, some people that contains some of the best work he's ever done. But you know, De Niro has done a lot of very undistinguished films over the past um, 10, 15 years. And why would he do those? Well, you know, um, there are several considerations. I remember interviewing Christopher Walken uh, several, um, uh, about 10, 15 years ago, uh, who's also a fine actor, who's done a lot of work that you, you know, in films that you might consider um, non-distinguished. You have to understand that actors, professional actors, go through more rejection uh, in a month or a year than many people go through in their lifetime. Uh, and De Niro, having made uh, this film in 1964, The Wedding Party with Brian De Palma, not doing another substantial film role for four years. Uh, think about the time of just going to auditions and, and getting more turned down, getting turned down more than you get um, accepted. For an actor to start getting work, uh, an, an actor who lives to act, uh, there's something about not, not working that's uh, anathema. Um, so this, this sort of plays into you being potentially less selective. Here we have the uh, explanation of the uh, of the stuff that was going on prior uh, uh, to this in the in the bookstore, why uh, who De Niro was looking at, why he chased the woman, why he got the book, and what he wants from her, and we never really find out. To be honest, he's showing her his uh, his equipment and he's telling her what he wants. We never really find out what 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 he wants from this encounter if he's is this is this is this a stealth attempt to get her to strip? Is it a stealth attempt to get her to sleep with him? Because if it is, it's it's rather ridiculously elaborate. 
So there's either something going on where he actually has, I wouldn't call it an artistic impulse, but the fetish is so, uh, so all-consuming that it requires this incredible elaboration. If you see the way the shot is composed here, um, over to the right, there's a young woman who's enacting almost the very thing that he's going to be asking her, uh, Linda, to enact uh, in his screen test. So here, this is, this is, a, this is a pretty sophisticated um, frame uh, that, that De Palma is using here. And, um, you know, just as in the opening scene of the film, we saw a screen within a screen. Here we have uh, different iterations of, 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 of a similar privileged view. And again, this is, this, is, this is a reason why I think there's a certain respect in which uh, Greetings is a little more, um, is even more of an art film in a sense than, than Easy Rider was, despite Easy Riders having these... Uh, these um, experimental and uh, psychedelic qualities. And here we have the, uh, it's interesting because the way he chooses to show the view from the viewfinder of an eight millimeter camera, I found it striking looking at the film now because what you've got is something that resembles uh, an iPhone frame. Uh, the aspect ratio is such that the, it's, uh, it's uh, higher than it is wide. Uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of the shape of the frame, it's almost what you would call vertical video. And this scene is interesting for a lot of reasons. I think um, there's obviously something very creepy about it, but we have to give the actor Rutania Alda here uh, here under the name Ruth Alda a lot of credit for giving this scene uh, some comic pizzazz. Um, as creepy as Ruben's instructions are to her. Her reactions are very funny, very sweet, and um, make the scene a lot less, uh, you know, overtly upsetting than it might have been otherwise. She went on to a, uh, a, a pretty thriving career as a supporting, uh, as a character actress, and she's still working. Um, she was in, uh, she's in The Fury for De Palma in uh, 78, 10 years after this. She went on to um, kind of gritty 70s pictures such as The Panic in Needle Park, Robert Altman's Long Goodbye, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Mazursky's Bloom and Love, Next Stop Greenwich Village she has a small part in, she's in The Deer Hunter, um, she's in Mommy Dearest, uh, Larry Cohen's The Stuff. Um, so she's, she's, uh, she's um, been around. Um, and she's, she's a fine actor. She's always welcome in anything she's in. I'll return to uh, Sean Levy's biography of De Niro. In 1968, De Niro was on stage in New York again in the National Theatre Company's production of The Boar by Anton Chekhov. And then he had got an unexpected bit of good fortune. The kid director for whom he'd worked on that film at Sarah Lawrence, that's the wedding party a few years earlier, which nobody had yet seen, was making a quickie independent film mostly improvised right in New York with a budget of more than $40,000. Uh, two weeks of work and better paid. Plus, this time, instead of a professor and another student sharing all the filmmaking duties within the kid, Brian De Palma, would direct the film on his own and have as a producer and co-writer Charles Hirsch, a young talent scout for Universal Pictures who'd been sent to New York to find youth-oriented projects and fresh faces. 
Hirsch understood the emerging American market for exploitation films with an arty edge. In the course of his talent search, he encountered De Palma, who was just finishing up a groovy little thriller entitled Murder a la Maud. They discussed making a film about youth alienation. Um, and the obsessions which happen to mirror those of the creators. Voyeurism, filmmaking, the Vietnam War, the Kennedy assassination, computer dating. In time, the pair realized they might be asking too much of an actor and an audience to bundle all of that up into one character's head, so they split their hero into three heroes, a comic troika like that of the wedding party. Hirsch approached the bosses at Universal with a script, but they passed. The most expensive thing in greetings, De Palma later noted, was, getting, was the stock and getting it processed. He telephoned Columbia University, which he attended as an undergraduate, and asked if he could use the rehearsal space and costumes of the student troupe, the Columbia players, and maybe addition a few of them for roles. He wound up fi finding one of his leads there, Garrett Graham, a French major from New York. As Graham remembered, he heard there was a scenario but no screenplay, and that he'd have to improvise his audition with the other aspirants, including De Niro. After they'd both been cast, they found themselves working in what, for all of them, was essentially an experimental fashion. We just plunged in, says Hirsch, because the only way to find out about making a film is to make a film. The movie was basically a series of episodes, each based on a scenario that was presented to the actors to flesh out with dialogue and action of their own invention, with De Palma and Hirsch serving as guides and ringmasters. We improvised a situation, then we filmed the scene, looked at it and learned it again, De Niro remembers. Then finally we shot the scene. It was all ad lib, according to Graham, and what struck me was that De Niro worked so incredibly hard on everything. Bob was analytical of every scene in a method way. He had to know why this scene had to have this material, where we were going with that scene. He was a real actor. He'd already committed himself to it, devoted his life to it. De Palma, too, noted De Niro's work ethic and intensity, but he saw something else as well. The actor's chameleonic power was evident in a way that it hadn't been a few years earlier. He showed up to shoot a scene, he remembered, and I didn't recognize him. We had to hang a title card on him to remind the audience that they'd seen him earlier in the film. It was makeup and clothes, but it was more than that. He just inhabits a character and becomes different physically. And here we are getting to the end of this voyeuristic scene. Um, again, the comic reactions... Uh, the, what she does with the clothes, the way she says, I wouldn't throw it on the bed, it'll get wrinkled. Uh, and as she gets more and more into it, she becomes more and more comfortable with the idea of what she's doing. I have to take off my garter belt. You have to get up early tomorrow morning, so you want to get to bed right away. And the scene will end with her saying, what are you doing coming through my window? Because what Ruben's looking for is the sexy striptease. And what uh, she's doing is what someone who comes home from work and wants some rests would do, which was undressed and go to sleep. What are you doing coming in through my window? Before we go any farther there, there's a cutaway and we have two views from Vietnam. And here is the, um, here is the scene which I think uh, has, a, uh, has a real, um, is a variation on the scene from Masculine Feminine. The um, interview with a uh, consumer product scene. Here is a scene with a... Um, with a cameraman, an ex-Vietnam cameraman, played by a character, a uh, fellow named M. Dobish, 
who has no other uh, film uh, experience. And he, uh, as you see, is wearing a suit. He's kind of buttoned up. He's going to give you his view of what's going on in Nam. And then we're going to cut to an actual XGI played by Richard Landis, who is going to tell some very different kinds of, um, of stories of Vietnam. And here we get an idea of the, you know, the terror that was facing a lot of, of people who were being sent to, to, to the war. It was a war that, you know, has its roots in the, in the late 50s and the French occupation of Indochina. Um, and then for reasons that, you know, uh, we can't really get into here, the Americans decided to take it up, sending advisors to Vietnam in the early 60s under the Kennedy administration. And then suddenly this became a cause. This became a thing where well, if South Vietnam fell to the communist North Vietnamese, you'd have this domino effect, and then you have had all of Asia um, becoming communist, and this was going to be a disaster. Now, if you look at the geopolitical scene today, you see ostensibly communist China, which is not at all a communist or socialist country, but is just a country where the entire economy is pretty much monitored and controlled by the the national government, which is not the same thing as communism or socialism. But, you know, it is a capitalistic system. And Vietnam, the United Vietnam, is, um, you know, not communist, particularly not communist as uh, as envisioned by Ho Chi Minh or anybody like that. Why, you know, the, what we essentially had to do with Vietnam as, as a country, the United States, is, is reconcile with the, uh, the people who had victory there and uh, do a lot of apologizing for things like war atrocities and this and that. So what we were fighting for is now uh, very far away. This blonde, uh, this willowy blonde who's haunting the scene as um, Richard Landis talks about... Uh, Soldiers playing Wyatt Earp Man, brought to you by Wheaties. She turns up uh, in a subsequent scene uh, and is followed by uh, John Rubin, um, De Niro's character. But, um, you know, at the time when you were drafted, you really had no idea what was going on, uh, you know, what you were in for why you were doing it and what the urgency was this is part of the reason why people tried so hard to resist the draft you know for for a conflict like world war ii you hear a lot about people enlisting because of the patriotic fervor and uh, pearl harbor there was not a precipitating incident like pearl harbor that would get young men interested in participating in the vietnam war i remember my uh my uncle who was uh the younger brother of my mother, uh, and was in his late teens, early 20s during this period, and he was drafted, and he went through a series of, of deferments. Um, he was the only man in the household of my grandmother. My grandfather had died in 1965, so that was a useful deferment for quite some time. But eventually, the deferments ran out, and he had to go to Vietnam, and he... He didn't have the hardest time there. He ended up working in a PX and he learned to be a bartender. Uh, so, you know, in, in the film Rushmore, there's a scene where uh, 
Jason Schwartzman's Max Fisher asks Bill Murray character about being in Vietnam. He says, you were in Nam. And he says, yes, I was in Nam. And Max Fisher says, were you in the shit? And Bill Murray says, I was in the shit. My own relatives were not in the shit. Although, you know, it wasn't a super pleasant experience, obviously. Um, and it wasn't something they wanted. Um, this scene kind of leads... Um, kind of nowhere it's just sort of um a a uh, a bridge to uh an upcoming scene which will introduce us to the smut peddler played by alan garfield who uh who was here at the beginning of a very productive uh character acting uh career um <clears throat> and this character who's uh, who you'll see in a in a in a, in a, in a short period is very much a New York type, uh, especially of this era when um, films were becoming uh, more permissive in their content and eight millimeter pornographic loops were becoming uh, common and uh, seen in the uh, in the Times Square area and so on. A lot of the quick cutting here and the uh, disjointedness um, comes from uh, could very well have been in the influence of the Richard Lester picture Petulia, which came out in uh, in May of '68. Um, the earlier scenes were at the uh, in Central Park. This is right outside what used to be the Whitney Museum, and here there's this uh, there's this um, scene where uh, Garfield smut peddler. Uh, is noticing John Rubin's interested in the girl, and he says, uh, good-looking girl, you'd like to bang her, huh? And there's this whole uh, bit of business about how they're just two regular guys who, uh, who like girls. Um, it's almost like the scene uh, between uh, Peter Sellers' Claire Quilty and James Mason's Humbert Humbert in uh, Stanley Kubrick's Lolita. Obviously, Kubrick was a filmmaker who uh, was influenced a great deal by uh, Kubrick. But a scene that we have coming up can arguably, although Kubrick himself has never mentioned it and it's never really come up in any criticism of Kubrick's work, but the scene coming up could be argued as an influence on Kubrick's film, A Clockwork Orange. Uh, I'll... uh, wait until it's actually happening to uh to point it out um you know there's a movie that does not shy away from uh showing its influences uh earlier in the film uh when uh, paul shaw comes home from to relax you saw on the bookshelf the famous book hitchcock truffaut the uh, book length interview between uh, francois truffaut and alfred hitchcock um there's uh there are there are all sorts of of nods to uh to these enthusiasms going on throughout the picture garfield um frequently played this kind of uh, voluble vaguely creepy type um I make films and, uh, and, uh, and I just, yes involved in situations that had to do with uh you know new new york uh, 
underbelly. He's in Milos Forman's Taking Off. He went on to, to work with De Palma again and Get to Know Your Rabbit. He, uh, he was very uh, prominent in uh, Robert Altman's Nashville, playing this kind of uh, very uh, aggressive and exploitative manager of a, of a country singer. One of my favorite performances by him is in The State of Things, a 1982 film played by Vim Vendors, um, which is based on Vendors' experiences working with a rather dissolute Francis Ford Coppola on the film Hammett. Uh, and um, Alan Garfield's character plays a guy named Gordon, who's, a, uh, who's, who's kind of a, a stand-in for Coppola, uh, who was... Is driving around Hollywood in a in an RV 24 hours a day, you know, changing drivers all the time, trying to figure out how everything went wrong for him. And Patrick Bachow plays a filmmaker who's a vendor stand-in who flies from Spain to Hollywood to track this guy down. And once he does, he's in this RV. And Alan Garfield's character Gordon is singing this song, which uh, Garfield himself composed. What did you do in Hollywood? And that's the uh, the refrain over and over again. What did you do in Hollywood? Um, Nashville was 75, uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, character work in there in between, including uh, Coppola's own film, The Conversation, uh, where he plays a character named Bernie Moran. But this is a uh, this is the kind of uh, this is the kind of character actor showcase that can really that really gets noticed because he gets a lot of screen time and uh, De Niro uh, you know he's he's clearly riffing and possibly improvising and De Niro's character just sort of uh, has to react. Um, it's not unlike the scene in Taxi Driver, in which uh, Scorsese Martin Scorsese, the director of that film, plays a uh, an insane passenger who uh, speaks to the back of De Niro's head and says all sorts of horrible things about his murderous intentions and his racism and his sexism. And uh, here you have this smut peddler who's trying to inveigle John Rubin into a, uh, a scheme where he's explaining uh, what loops, uh, what pornographic loops even are. These short eight millimeter films, uh, that you could screen uh, at home on your 8mm projector, but were more often than not screened in, in peep show booths that were in uh, emporiums that uh, were, uh, were, starting, were starting to crop up in Times Square uh, in New York at this time. You couldn't watch them at the Whitney Museum where this is set. How good can it be? Yeah, how good can it be? And as you've noticed by now, uh, by the time we're at this narrative thread, the structure of the film has kind of just sort of not exploded, but we've, we've abandoned um, the other characters. Uh, and uh, this movie has suddenly become about, uh, about John Rubin, really. And it will it will it will stay focused on him until until the end of the film, which we're getting to. Thank 
Now, this whole monologue has distracted John from what his actual purpose was, was to sort of track down this, uh, this young willowy blonde. And what he's left with is instead this pornographic movie which has been gifted him by Alan Garfield's character. And we will now see the dirty movie or computer date number four, Paul's Last Stand. The Delivery Boy and the Bored Housewife. Now, tying it into Paul's computer dating adventures is uh, another Brechtian strategy. Um, but the idea that uh, Paul is now the star of a pornographic loop comes from more or less out of nowhere. And here's what I was talking about. The, um, the sexual action here, and this is more of the stuff that uh, got the film an X rating, uh, is this kind of fast motion sex scene done in, in, in still pictures and a little bit of fast motion. And when I was watching it, I thought, well, you know, clearly, not clearly, but it's, uh, it seems like this might have been something that, uh, that Stanley Kubrick saw and could have influenced the fast motion sex scene in his film, A Clockwork Orange. The, uh, the music here is this, uh, t Ricky, Ricky Ticky, uh, tack piano, uh, stuff. Well, uh, in Kubrick's film, it's, uh, the, um, William Tell Overture, uh, scored for synthesizer, uh, and, um, done by, uh, Wendy Carlos. But, um, that scene, the, uh, delivery boy and the board, board housewife is clearly, is I think one of the movie's most, uh, prominent, uh, stylistic flourishes. And here we have um, the resolution of the uh, of the Lloyd Clay uh, narrative. And uh, for a filmmaker who later would go on to such uh, Baroque depictions of violence as the uh, literal explosion of the John Cassavetes character in The Fury and the, uh, the multiple machine gun deaths in uh, Scarface and, and so much more. Um, the actual shooting death of Lloyd Clay here is, uh, doesn't quite, is not, is, is not really something that uh, comes off. There's uh, no uh, there's no visible wounding here, whereas in De Palma's future films you'd have quite a few uh, bits of uh, elaborate bloody violence. Now uh, we have the director's cameo. Uh, John Rubin himself is going in for his physical and trying to. Uh, get out of uh, the draft, and the fellow sitting there smoking a cigarette is Brian De Palma before getting a beard. Now, unlike Alfred Hitchcock, De Palma is not a film director, or even Martin Scorsese, De Palma is not a filmmaker who relishes being on screen himself. Uh, he's seen in the uh, film The Bonfire of the Vanities, sitting on the uh, back of a vehicle um, strictly for the purposes of monitoring the Steadicam that's uh, making the uh, very long take 
in that film, but he's not a guy who likes to be in films. And the reason that he's in this particular scene where he's upbraided by uh, John Rubin is just because the other actor did not show up for the, uh, for the, uh, for the shoot that day. And that's it. Killed, you know, uh, as many as I could, uh, and started swearing, and showed him an armband of, a, of an organ, a secret organization, a rightist organization that I was involved in, that I said I, I was the secretary of, and he just he didn't say it. He said, "Well, you know," he said, "Don't worry." And the film is now winding down to the point where it will deliver its ultimate punchline, which is to put John Rubin in Vietnam. His attempts to get out have not been successful. And he's, uh, he's going to be fighting over there for what he does not know. And uh, there's another anticipation for uh, here of, uh, of another Kubrick film, perhaps Full Metal Jacket, because um, as a uh, soldier, he's going to be called upon to engage a, uh, a female combatant, which was the, uh, the resolution of the, of the second half of Full Metal Jacket, where... Uh, the uh, the outfit uh, in which Matthew Modine's character uh, is assigned is being wiped out by a sniper who turns out to be a woman. Now the tables are sort of turned on the voyeur as John Rubin poses for this uh, prostitute who uh, the, the actor uh, breaks the uh, breaks the fourth wall. Uh, Sarah Jo and uh, uh, and it's. Um, Roz, Roz, Roz Kelly is the uh, is the actor here. Um, you got great possibilities. <laughs> what am I going to do? I, I can only stay out of the country for a few months before they catch up with me. Here, uh, De Niro is uh, a little looser than his character has been. He uh, dances. He uh, is playful. Um, in a subsequent film, uh, Bang the Drum Slowly, he'll actually uh, sing. Um, it's not going to be as bad as all that over there, you know? I'd do just about anything for a boy. And here the uh, character breaks the fourth wall, and uh, this is the uh, finale of the film, somewhere in Vietnam. The foliage is uh, about as convincing as you're going to get in the United States. Uh, it doesn't really look like Vietnam. It probably was shot or in the, the Meadowlands of New Jersey or something like that. And here's the actor Ray Tuttle as a news correspondent uh, who's going to interview uh, John Rubin, who now uh, has shaved off his mustache, mustache as, as per Army regulations, and is going to discuss why he's in Vietnam. His answer is, uh, I don't know. We're almost through with the film. I'd like to uh, finish off by reading uh, what the critic Wilfred Sheed wrote about this film uh, in Esquire. Search and destroy, sir. You seek out the enemy and destroy them. Is that yes, right? Yes, sir. Yes. For example, the basic style is parody. The they take off, they take the ponderous mumbo jumbo of, for instance, the Kennedy assassination theorists and run screaming down the hall with it. Likewise, the cult of photography, which has made the Vietnam War into a peep show and the sex act into a lab slide, is treated with a wild-eyed derision. The things that adults take seriously become comic dances, festival masks. This is their America, 
They know no other, but they have turned it into a playground using the same materials we use for our funeral parlor. Greetings rings true partly because it does have links with the past. There's a nostalgia about it, like good schoolboy fiction, even for those of us who came to age in the glum knees-together post-war years. They act where we talked, they talked where we just thought. There are not some, they are not some electronic concoctions, but college students whose scurviness has evolved to meet new challenges and, of course, to lose to them. Greetings does not convey its exuberance with the bobbing camera and garbled soundtrack. Brian De Palma and Charles Hurst have made a solid professional film of it with obvious debts to Richard Lester at all, but some good touches of their own. I had been coming to feel that any allusion in film to the Vietnamese mess was a sure mark of charlatanism, but this combination of TV war and draftees nightmare is a whole fresh contribution to international strain. Of course, De Niro would go on to play a Vietnam uh, soldier in uh, a very different film, uh, The Deer Hunter, a film that uh, is, is somewhat more conservative than this one, to say the least. It's a VC, so his orders are to kill her anyway. She's in his sight, and I... Now, uh, if you go from this film straight to the next film, I'm not certain if it's explained of uh, how John Rubin gets home from Vietnam. But uh, the home that he comes to in High Mom is very... Uh, is one in which he'll uh, have to face... Uh, in which, his, in which the character's voyeurism and filmmaking uh, obsessions become more pronounced, and also uh, New York, where um, racial tensions uh, are uh, more at the forefront. One of the most uh, exciting sequences in, uh, in High Mom is the uh, theater production called Be Black Baby, which uh, gives uh, white theater goers the... Uh, the uh, African-American experience in the United States. And here, uh, John Rubin is engaging the, the Vietnamese woman, uh, not by uh, taking shots at her with a gun, but by framing her for the news cameraman. sit alone in your room and you know as if you're alone nobody watch you take off your shoes he is essentially uh directing her and to make this point clearer we're now intercutting the scenes of the uh shoot with linda and we go out once again with then president lyndon johnson and a freeze frame of him and a reprise of the, of the title song. And that's the end of my commentary. I hope uh, you've enjoyed it. And um, I hope you enjoy the next film, Hi Mom. Uh, this is uh, a really exciting package and I'm really happy to have worked on it. And uh, I want to thank you for listening. You'll soon find I know what's best. So be my guest, but you do what I say. Great American waffle machine It's carefully colored in army